All right, and welcome to the Utah Puck Report. I'm your host, Jay Stevens, and uh, I'm kind of solo today. No, no co-hosts. Everybody's off on summer break and having a good time. And uh, we're interrupting somebody else's summer break, though, a, a guy who's managed to stay busy in hockey since becoming a legend here in Salt Lake. We have Rich Chernomaz on the show today. Cherno, how are you? Good, Jay. Great, uh, great to be on. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been back in Salt Lake. Yeah, how long has it been since you've been to Salt Lake? Uh, well, I've actually I was there just for a uh, four or five hour stop there on a trip back from Europe, uh, laid up at the airport on my way back to Vancouver. <laughs> okay. So other than that, it's been it's been a long time. So you just kind of looked out the windows from the airport and had some uh, had some good memories. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty much. Oh yeah, no, I had great, uh, great six years in Salt Lake uh, back in the day when we were, you know, Calgary's farm team, and um, uh, you know, and we're fortunate enough to play with uh, a lot of great players and win a championship. And uh, no, it was a lot of fun. Met a lot of really nice people there from Salt Lake. Yeah, so I want to get into that more, but first I want to learn uh, more about you in the beginning, and uh, that's that's kind of what what we do is we just kind of tell the story of our of our guys and like. So where were you born, and when did you start playing hockey? Um, I was born actually just outside of Winnipeg in a place called Selkirk, Manitoba, and um, my dad worked in a steel mill there, and and. Uh, the mill was downsizing, and so when I was six years old, uh, my parents decided to pack up, and we moved out out here to British Columbia. Uh, we had uh, we had some friends and some family that uh, <clears throat> had moved out here previous from uh, from Manitoba, and uh, I was six years old at the time, and started playing hockey a year later when I was uh, seven, turning eight. Okay. And uh, so, what are your and, what are your fondest memories of those those days? Like just growing up and playing hockey. Did you get to play with your dad? Was your dad a hockey player? No, my dad wasn't. wasn't a, He was a curler. That was the extent oh, no. of his uh, oh, sports no. career. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, my, my mom was actually a pretty good athlete. She played uh, pretty competitive fast pitch, and uh, I still I remember being the bat boy when uh, she was playing out here and. Um, you know, so it was really, uh, you know, those days growing up here on a in a very relaxed atmosphere in a very small town. Um, you know, I had a lot of good memories of uh, when I first started playing hockey here. So, one of the things we found out, like one of the reasons everybody likes to hear about how you grew up and and um, you know get your backstory it's it, that kind of feeds into how you became the player that you became and now you're telling me that you were a you were a bat boy and you grew up really in a relaxed atmosphere but that's definitely not how you played so there's got to we got to figure out where uh where all your intensity came from and uh and you know you had such leadership qualities here um well i think i think you know i mean as far as the hockey career was concerned when i was uh my second year playing bantam hockey was kind of when I really took off and had a really good year, uh, you know, with the with the travel team out of my hometown, uh, Port Alberni. And um, then the next year, I played as a 15-year-old in an island league that was a combination of senior men's and and junior B players, and. Um, 
and then the next year had a really good year that year too and then the next year I went out to Saskatoon and lived uh with my aunt and my uncle that lived out there in Saskatoon and played uh played uh in the junior provincial league and that year uh the Blades the Saskatoon Blades and the WHL had a fair amount of injuries and they brought uh myself up and uh a uh, guy by the name of Mark Habscheid, who had a uh, tremendous uh, playing and coaching career, too. And uh, <clears throat> then I was actually, at that time, I was on the protected list from the Victoria Cougars in Saskatoon, and uh, Victoria just made a deal for me to play out for the rest of the season with Saskatoon. And then the following year is when I started my uh, junior career with the Victoria Cougars. Oh, that's interesting. Does, I don't know that you'd hear of a team... Uh... Working out a deal, and, and so you were kind of on loan for with the yeah, with the much, blades. Yeah. yeah, I was I was on loan uh, just for I think it was about you know, half the season, um, and then the next year uh, when I went to Victoria, uh, that we had a very good first year and played with guys. Uh, while Grant Fear was my roommate, and wow. Barry Peterson, Tory Robertson, Bob McGill. Paul Sear, Mark Morrison. I mean, we had a we had a pretty strong team, and uh, we ended up winning the Western League that year and uh, and going to the Memorial Cup. But uh, Dale Howarchuk uh, and his team from Cornwall were just a little bit too strong for us. <laughs> Man, those are those are some big names you're throwing around. Yeah. So so yeah. that was your first year juniors. You went to well, kind of. So your first full season juniors. You went to the Memorial Cup. Yeah, 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 and then. Uh, and then that year was the year I was drafted by the old Colorado Rockies. Uh, it was a 26th pick overall, and at that t- that time, that, that that was a second round pick, oh, wow. uh, as opposed to that being a first rounder today. Uh, I think there was only yeah, so there would have only been 21 teams, yeah, uh, 21 teams in the NHL at that time, and I, I can't remember how many years I was. I was actually drafted in 1981. Okay, and then. Uh, uh, after I was drafted, came back and played a couple more years junior. And then uh, that year that I turned pro was when the, the, the Colorado uh, Rockies had moved the franchise to the New, New Jersey Devils. Right. And uh, and that's where I started my pro career. Yeah, and a lot of people don't even know anymore. that the And I've asked around because, you know, I try to do a bunch of uh, back, back work on, on the players from here that I interview. And I ask people, I'm like, do you remember – you know, the Colorado Rockies and people are, they only think of the baseball team. So do you have any right. of those, do you have that jersey on your wall? The old, your NHL jersey from the Rockies? No, I don't, I don't have any of the jerseys on my, on my walls, but I have them, uh, I have them tucked away in a, in a couple of trunks and stuff. And I've tried to, you know, throughout my career, keep at least one jersey of all the player, uh, all the teams I played on and coached. Oh, cool. I wish I would have done that just for the teams that I've e-bugged on here because I've got I would have had so many I just never had the opportunity. All right, so uh, you turned pro and now you're property of the New Jersey Devils, and uh, so who you, did you get put in the farm club at that point? Yeah, so I I started actually at, so I signed a level entry contract and it was a, a three plus one and um I started in New Jersey and in New Jersey at that time they were. They were a relatively weak and thin organization, and 
So a lot of us young guys, uh, Pat Burbeek, Rocky Trache, Kenny Dan- Danico, Kirk Mueller, <laughs> Joey Sorella, um, these are the guys that, you know, were in my time era. And, and uh, unfortunately, we didn't get off to a very good start. And three of us had gotten set down to the minors and played up in Portland, Maine in the American League. And uh, uh, going into my last year of my contract, uh, Played 35 games in, uh, or 25 games in, in Jersey, and um, my contract was up, and they wanted to renew my contract, uh, but only offered a two way contract. And so I decided to make the jump to Calgary's organization, and because uh, they had uh, sweetened the pot a little bit more for me in that regard. And um, but uh, when I went to Calgary, I mean they were. They were at that time very, very strong. Uh, they were very strong, uh, you know, with the with the depth of their fo- their forwards, and that's how I ended up in Salt Lake. Cause mm-hmm. Salt Lake was a farm team there uh, at that point in time uh, when when uh, when Calgary had won the Stanley Cup. Right. So, did you get how many games did you get? The I think you played what three games, four games with Calgary. Uh, was up for a couple one year, and then I think the year before, the second to last year, I was in Salt Lake. Uh, I played ten or eleven more in total. I played fifty-one NHL games. Okay, yeah, or a ten-year career. So when you got assigned to Salt Lake, what did you know of Salt Lake City? Well, it, I. I didn't really know that much about the city. I just knew kind of the position that because I was 25, turning 26 at the time, and uh, um, Cliff Fletcher, <clears throat> who uh, you know uh, really kind of took it upon himself to sit down with me and explain to me exactly. You know, uh, I was kind of like a depth guy. I was the first year I was there at Calgary's training camp. Uh, Myself um, uh, and Theron Fleury were the actual last two guys to get cut. Uh, and so I went down to Salt Lake. He went back to Moose Jaw, uh, where he played junior. And then, um, you know, Cliff had said, expressed to me, he goes, you know, we want you to be a depth guy within our organization, but we want you also to be a guy that, uh, you know, um, really kind of, you know, take take the leadership role in Salt Lake and help develop the younger guys and at the same time uh, you know be a be a strong presence on the ice uh, for the team in Salt Lake and is that was that how did you accept that role because I mean obviously you're still trying to make the NHL and your dream is to be in the NHL and now they're telling you to to be the guy to help develop the other guys was that a tough pill to swallow at first or I don't I think it's more of a situation where, you know, when I was at training camp, and that was that first year that I went to, went to Calgary's organization, was the year that they won the Stanley Cup, and that was the same year that we won the Turner Cup uh, in Salt Lake. And, you know, after training camp was over, I mean, it was very easy for me to see, unless they start moving guys out, uh, or train a few guys that there wasn't really going to be much op- opportunity in Calgary because they had so much depth and they were, you know, quite obviously very strong that year. So, and, you know, as it worked out in Salt Lake, you know, um, I just kind of felt that, you know, you never ever give up the hope that, uh, 
you know, maybe you get traded or maybe you get called up and, and, you know, make the most of your time while you're up and stuff in that regard. So, um, you know, at that point in time, I was just, you know, just try to stay very positive and, and, and play hockey and, uh, enjoy it and, and continue to get better. And you come in and you win the championship as a as a year as you know you're the leader of the team and you and you you guys had I mean the Golden Eagles those years were just amazing to watch and you had so much depth even here for an for a farm club and then you, you mentioned Theo Fleury but tell us a little bit about the, those playoffs and the and the guys that were there when you were that you, that you remember riding that uh, those playoffs with the Sully Golden Eagles to win that championship. Well, I just remember a couple of guys that we, like, we had some really good draft picks and, uh, Stefan Mateau and, um, uh, he's the one guy that stands out particularly for me. And then, and then we picked up guys, uh, like Peter Lappin and Jimmy Johansson, uh, that came out of colleges, uh, before the playoffs started. And then, you know, right at the very start of the playoffs, we ended up getting Theo for the first 10 games, um, you know, that really did a, you know, amazing job helping us get to the finals, but he was under, you know, under that rule as a junior player that he could only play 10 pro games for us. Um, but that, you know, like any team, you know, down the stretch, when you have the opportunity to strengthen your team, always gives you the best uh, best chance and you know shaky demore and and natty played oh, yeah. <laughs> outstanding for us in the playoffs and uh you know when you kind of really look back i mean um you know especially that particular year uh it was relatively easy i think the first two rounds i think first round we played uh denver which was the rangers farm team i think we swept them and then i think the next round went five games and then we played Flint, Michigan in the uh, finals, and I think that game, that series went six games of fight, if I remember correctly. So, so back, you know, when you when you're young like that, you know, you just you just you're playing because you love the game, and and you know we had a we had a very strong chemistry within our dressing room, and um, you know we just had a lot of fun together that year. Yeah, that's. And you guys were so amazing to watch. And I was, I was telling the people around here, we've had some pretty big guests on the show already, you know. And uh, I was like, this is, uh, this is kind of a, a childhood hero of mine that we're, we're interviewing today. And, he's, and just watching you guys and the confidence and the way you had. Because uh, wasn't that Mike Richter with Colorado the first round that you guys just swept? He, he was, yes. He was. Uh, Mike Richter, Simon Wielden. Um, there was actually a couple of defensemen, um, that, that had actually fairly lengthy careers in the NHL that were, that were, uh, you know, that were young draft picks at that time for the Rangers organization. Um, but, you know, I think overall, the one thing that really might stand out in, in, uh, people's minds is the fact that, you know, as skilled as, a skilled a team that we had in those first couple of years in Salt Lake. Um, we were well coached and, you know, with Bobby Francis and Paul Baxter that first year and the ongoing years with Bobby as well. But, uh, we were, we, we, we didn't lack any toughness. I mean, we, we had some pretty tough boys on the team. So for guys like myself, it was, 
easy for me to be able to play my game and not get intimidated by some by some of the other opponents, you know, um, tough guys or whatever, because uh, those, you know, guys like, you know, Stu Grimson, Rick Hayward, uh, Kerry Clark, oh, Darren Banks, yeah. and you just go down the line with a lot of those guys that, you know, if anybody you know, on the opposing teams touch the, you know, the key players or, you know, the, the offensive minded players that were maybe not that big at that time. Uh, those guys were, you know, I mean, they were pushing me out of the way to get into the fight. Huh? So. <laughs> Man, to, and it was so much fun to watch, but when you drop names like Stu Grimson, I mean, at Cruz, I just remember those guys just oh, that's unbelievable. Another guy I failed to mention, but like I said, I, I'm, and I'm sure there's probably another five or six guys that I, I uh, uh, have it mentioned too as well, especially on the on, on our defense course. I mean, Steve Smith for um, uh, one year. I think Todd Gillingham. Oh yeah, know, I mean, Gillingham. Yeah. What, uh, was Marty Samard? How was how was he? Was he a Martin 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 Samard? Another guy, you know, Darwin McCutcheon. I mean, <laughs> so I mean, the list just continues and goes on that way. Yeah, and you say so. That's your recipe for success in eighty-seven, eighty-eight. And uh, how do you think that is now? When as a coach now, do you try to build that same kind of a recipe? You get your skill players, and then do you have protectors still, or is that part kind of well, died out? I, 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 I think that you know people will say, and you know I will definitely say that. Uh, the change of the rules and how the you know how the ice is laid out with the you know with the icings and the offsides and that they've really tried to speed up the game and make it more dynamic to watch than it already was um, and so the way the teams you know and the GMs are are building especially at the pro level and even at the junior level. Everybody's building for for speed and for and finesse, and so guys, you know, back then, you know, when I was um, when I was uh, came out of junior, turning pro, there wasn't nearly the the uh, you know insight of our smaller you know offensive guys that maybe skated well if you weren't you know six foot plus and willing to drop your gloves, there was no room for you at the NHL level. Right. And unless you were, you know, unless you were exceptionally, you know, dynamic with, you know, a, a skill level or with speed, um, it was very, very tough at those times to really crack the teams in the NHL because everything was based off of size and, and toughness and, you know, combined with the skill, but that's where I see where the big difference is in today's game, that uh, there's there's less toughness, there's, you know, average size size of the teams has gone down, um, but the speed of the game is, you know, uh, tremendously improved in that regard. So how do you think a player, you were a speedy guy, right? What, what were your main strengths back then, speed and puck handling? Or? Um... Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, skating was, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was an above average skater. I think I was a, a, a very fluent skater. Um, you know, and when you watch, you know, you know, players that have a very fluent style, um, you know, they just look like they're floating on the ice a little bit in, in that sense, floating in, in the sense of, 
you know, just their rhythm that it makes them look quick. Um, and uh, but I think more so is just because of the lack of size and and strength that I had, which, which you know, in my opinion, kind of maybe uh, hurt my opportunity um, a little bit in that regard. But uh, in today's game, I think guys that were my size and 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 had you know have some skill and have some speed or get money, getting a much greater opportunity than they did back in those days. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting at. Is uh... Well, we, we've seen that, and we, we've had a uh, guest on. I don't know if you know, are you familiar with Greg Lieb? Yeah, I know Greg. I, I actually coached Greg in, uh, in uh, Europe one year, oh, okay. in Germany. All right, well, yeah, that makes sense, in the DEL. Or, so, and and I, talk, yeah. I, I talked to Greg, and we talked to other people about Greg, and, and, I, and I asked him the same question I'm kind of asking you now is, you know, in today's game, would, would today's game fit him better? than it did in his time. So you were a skill player, you were a skater, and you were a leader, and you had guys that would open the ice for you. But do you think you would, your style would be better today? Would you be an NHL player on a starting roster now with your skill set if you were 10 years, 10 years younger? Well, I think it's definitely a... Uh, uh, I would put it this way. I was a bubble guy, and even though I only played in three NHL organizations over the 12 years that I played in North America, uh, I think I would have had a greater chance in, you know, today based on the skill level that I had back, you know, back then. Um, and uh, I think, too, that, uh, you know, the way the draft works and how the teams, you know, have so many different dimensions of and ideas behind the players that, you know, they they draft today. They're much more patient with their draft picks uh, than they were back then in regards to, you know, giving them every ample opportunity to play uh, their style of game uh, with a couple of veterans. And, I, I mean, I remember, um, you know, when Doug Riseborough was the GM of uh, Calgary after Cliff left to go to Toronto, uh, I came up for 10 games, and I think nine of the 10 games uh, I played on the right side with uh, Joel Otto, who was you know, a, a very effective checking centerman, and Craig Berube, uh, you know, who was a, you know, he, he, he was a policeman. He was a tough guy. So, uh, you know, nothing against play, those players, but, you know, I was a finesse guy, and I think if I would have had an opportunity to play with a centerman that was, more of a disher or uh, more of a setup guy, you know, I might have had that opportunity a little bit more than I did. But at the same time, you know, because a guy like Siren Fleury was right behind, you know, me uh, and a few years younger, um, really kind of broke the ice in regards to that little guy syndrome that, you know, other teams never took a chance on that when he came into the league and, he got that opportunity in Calgary. He, you know, he jumped on every opportunity that he got, and I'll never forget. So, the year that he turned pro, um, he came and started his pro career in Salt Lake, and he got called up on New Year's Eve. Um, he had played. We'd played 36 games, I think, at that time, 
in, uh, in, in Salt Lake in the season. And I think he had about 72 or 74 points in those 36 games. Oh, and from that time on, after he got called up in Calgary, that's when he took off. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's really, you know, it's always comes down to decision making within the, you know, the, the coaches and the GMs of, you know, what they think and who they foresee being, you know, the potential, long-time NHL player and you know unfortunately I, I just never got that opportunity uh, in Calgary but I think it was more so because of the depth that they had right. uh, more than anything. So what was it like to, to see a guy like Theron Fleury come through the organization? I mean, here, you see this little guy walk into the locker room did you already know everything about him when he came in or was, you know did he have to prove No himself? not at all not, not at all and uh, you know uh, the old you know, saying a lot of skeletons in the closet. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud of a guy like Theo that through all his career and the ups and downs that he had, especially in his personal life, that, you know, he's still with us today to talk about some of the things that, you know, put him into that position. And he got put in in his personal life and how he was able to cope and deal with all those, you know, I would say nightmares coming out of junior hockey where, you know, uh, those things in today's game where, you know, I mean, people are going to jail for those types of things now. And, um, you know, uh, it's just fortunate that, you know, like I said, a guy like Theo and everything he went through that he's still, you know, with us today to talk about, you know, his, his overall life and how, um, that affected his life, everything that he went through and experienced yeah, when he was a young guy. He's definitely become an advocate for that and uh, and opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that that was happening then and it could happen now. And, and I think, you know, with him going through what he went through and then uh, riding his ship, I think he's, uh, he's going to be able to change a lot of people's lives for the better. But, uh, Very much. I just, but what was it like from a skill set? I mean, you see this this guy walk into the locker room. Did you know he was going to be such a phenomenal player? Um, did you know that the minute he hit the ice no, with you guys? Or? Not, not right away. No, not right away. I mean, he was a very confident uh, young man when he, you know, when he uh, came up as a 19-year-old, uh, especially, you know, the first link of a uh, – I think the biggest thing is what you saw on the ice was, um, you know, being not a very tall guy. He had he had amazing leg strength and balance, and he was very very difficult to to knock off the puck. And I think that was probably his biggest attribute, you know, as a player, um, based on basic fundamentals. That you know, his balance and his leg strength was amazing. Yeah. Well, both of you guys, like, I remember the first time I saw both of you guys off the ice, and it just looked like you guys had fire extinguishers under your calf skin. You know, you, your, <laughs> your calves were so big. I just, I just remember thinking, oh, man, I got to, if this is how hockey players are built, I really just got to hit the gym and start lifting things with my legs. You guys were, it was amazing to see. I mean, you both, like, I can't tell you how many kids around here are named Theron because of uh-huh. his, his quick impact. And he wasn't here that long, a year and a half. Not even that, right? I don't right? think he was there a full year. Yeah, so yeah. 10 games one year and then up to New Year's. I, I remember being at that yeah. game, and as we were leaving, somebody mentioned that Fleury had got pulled up after the New Year's game. Because uh, I don't know if you remember, but that was a New Year's Eve party at the Salt yeah. Palace. Yeah. 
And so we yeah, that's when he got that's when he got the call when we were at the party. Oh yeah. And I, and it spread yeah. around like everybody all the fans all of a sudden knew and it was kind of a you know, we all knew. Like we knew he was he was not going to be here long. But uh yeah. man, you guys had such an impact on this market and you were you were such a leader here and uh uh when anybody talks about the Salt Lake Golden Eagles, the names that come up, like your name, Theron Fleury, uh Lyle Bradley, you know, and Palazzari, obviously. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah. Nobody ever brings up the goaltenders. We had some amazing goaltenders in those years, and and uh, you mentioned Shaky, and uh, and uh, you know, we had some other guys come through. Um, I'm forgetting his name. All of a sudden, Trevor Kidd, Trevor, Andre yeah. Trafalov, Jason Mazzotti. There you go. Uh, Rick Hines was Rick Hines back in the yeah. before us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rick Hines was there. And, uh, Paul Skidmore. I mean, we we had some amazing goaltenders. Yeah, yeah. But you guys are you guys are what people think of when they think of the Salt Lake Golden Eagles. And I can tell you that every time that the goal that the Utah Grizzlies have a coaching vacancy, it, that your name is all over the message boards. Like everybody wants you to oh, bring Cherno back, bring Cherno back, and it's like no, no. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I've never gotten a call though. Really, <laughs> I cannot believe that that's that is that blows my mind with the coaching history yeah. you have and the. And the, the attachment that our market has to you, I cannot believe they haven't called you. Uh, so I, I've got a couple more things I want to talk to you about. We'll get into your coaching career. But as, as your career comes down to, you know, your playing days are coming to an end, let's talk a, let's talk a minute about the roller hockey. Tell us, tell us your... Okay. <laughs> do you, uh, how is that a little blip on your radar? Tell me about how that all came about and what you remember of it. Well, I just, and I can't even remember the fellow's name that actually started the, he was the fellow that, uh, I think invented sport court. Yes. Uh, and, um, do you know his name, by the way? I, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally name. blanking on it right now. And he's a local guy. Yeah, so local anyway, they had bought, yeah, he had bought in the franchise, the RHL franchise, and, um, um, Kenny Morrow, who actually was, uh, was the um, uh, defenseman for the New York Rangers for for years? Actually, got asked to coach the team, and then he called me and you know asked me if you know if I'd like to play and if there were some of the other guys from the Golden Eagles like Rick Bassard played one year, Todd Harkins played uh, that first year. Um, there was a few of the other guys too and stuff, so. And then the first year we played actually in a parking lot out in <laughs> South Valley somewhere yeah, the, at a mall. Yeah, the uh, Southtown Southtown Mall. Yeah, Southtown Mall. And then and then the next year he actually moved the team to Vegas, and we played uh, out of the UNLV rink there in Vegas uh, the next year. Yeah. And after that, that was uh, that. It was two years. It was you know. Uh, I think two and a half months or three months, but um, the training actually, you know, playing hockey on rollerblades was amazing. Uh, come training camp when, you know, we were doing our testing and stuff, so the, the, the VO te- uh, VO2 test uh, for oxygen, oxygen intake uh, was the best that I ever had in my whole career playing those two years of uh, roller hockey in the summertime. It's it's weird because a lot of people, 
a lot of hockey purists are against using roller hockey or inline hockey or whatever you want to call it as training for hockey. But then you see guys, there are guys in the NHL right now, and, and one name that really stands out was Alex Tange, um, that played a ton of roller hockey growing up and then was a phenomenal stick handler and always in good shape. What Do you have a viewpoint on right. that? Do you, would you tell your players now to use roller hockey as off-season training? Well, I mean, you just look at how much the off-ice training of what the players were doing back 30 years ago to what they're doing now right. um, has evolved a lot. And, it, and it's a little bit of everything that, uh, you know, but everything is so specified now in, in, you know, in training the muscles that are actually used for for ice hockey and the sport of ice hockey. But, you know, to me in general, I mean, uh, you know, you have natural athletes, whether they're playing hockey, golf, baseball, basketball, whatever, that just have that gift of being able to pick up a sport real quick. And, and uh, you know, I, 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 I had nothing but positive results from playing the roller hockey, and, and I'm sure a lot of other guys, uh, whether now or before or for the future, will also have, uh, you know, will have positive results in that regard. Uh, do you remember during your RHI days, do you remember going on to uh, the opposing team's bench? for? Uh, do you remember the big fight at Southtown? I think there was one time, yeah, <laughs> if I remember correctly. But, I mean, uh, it was just part of the game now. Or back then. I mean, now it's, you know, it's uh, whether it's frowned upon or whatever, I, I, I'm not really sure. But, I mean, they really try to, you know, calm down the violence and, and the fighting in hockey and stuff over the, you know, the last 15, 20 years. And uh, um, I, I just think, you know, for the type of sport that, you know, uh, and aggressiveness in the sport of hockey that, uh it's always nice for fans to see that once in a while. And <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, and I think you really notice it at the NHL level where, you know, you don't, you don't nearly see as much fighting as he used to. Right. Well, that was definitely one of the things that stood out. A lot of people asked about that to see if you remembered that fight. That uh, <laughs> I think it was against Vancouver, and I, we even had fans jumping over the boards. We had, uh, I don't know, if, I can't remember who it was, uh, Dennis Nazari. He owned uh, Salty Peaks. And uh, he tried to uh, he tried to come over and help you out anyway when you guys were getting into little fisticuffs. So we had multiple people arrested, and that's that's just one of the one of the legends of Rich Chernomaz in Salt Lake. <laughs> so tell us tell well, us about I, now as a coach. Where are you where are you at these days? Is, where are you coaching this year? Well, I'm I'm actually in between jobs right now. Um, so I would you know let, let's just back it up how I ended up going to Europe. So. My last two years uh, playing in North America, I was a player assistant coach in St. John's with Toronto's farm team. And in the second year, um, when I was in St. John's, we lost out in the second round of the playoffs. And at that year, uh, there was a lockout. And uh, there was a lockout from uh, at the NHL level. Uh, and they didn't go back until... Till I think it was at the end of January, and they had a condensed 40- or 38-game schedule uh, till the rest of the year. So what they did was they took a bunch of us American leaguers over to the World Championships. Oh, yeah. And when I we played for Team Canada, we lost out in the, uh, the semifinals to go to the gold medal game, and we ended up beating Czechoslovakia for the bronze medal. And, and I had probably about four or five offers to go play in, in Europe. Um that 
for that following year. And so that's actually how I ended up going over to Europe and then playing in Germany. And, um, you know, <clears throat> the bottom line, I mean, I was 30 years old at the time, and actually Cliff Fletcher wanted me to retire from playing, uh, be a bench assistant for one more year in St. John's, and then, you know, start my coaching career in, in North America. And at that time, I just wasn't ready to retire at 30 years old. And that's why I ended up making the jump to uh, to Germany. And, um, you know, I mean, financially, it just made a lot more sense, too, and especially after pounding it out in the minors for 10 years from when I started back with New Jersey's organization. Um, I just felt it was, you know, it was time to to make that step. And, um, you know, my chances of playing NHL were over. And so I went there and did that and uh, played four more years. And then just lucky enough, the team that I was playing on, um, when I retired, uh, they knew that I was going into the coaching field. And the following year, they'd asked me to uh, coach the team. And so I did. And, you know, it was the highest level uh, hockey in Germany at the DEL level. And um coached there in, in, in a place called Schwenningen, uh, which is down in the southwest region of Germany. And then from there went to, uh, I took a step back because it was there two years and there, the market it was a smaller market team and they were losing, um, sponsors, um, because it wasn't a very big city and, and, and the money actually was going up for the players at that point in time. So, um, they were going back down to the second league. So I went to Cologne as an assistant coach the following year and worked with a guy that, uh, uh, that had been in the league but had both jobs as coach and GM. And so my first year in Cologne, he ended up getting fired, uh, which was an Olympic year in February. And then I'm, I just took over for the rest of the year. Um, but I my, my fate was well known then that I was not going to be back in Cologne the following year either. But we ended up winning the championship. So um, I ended up coming back and sitting – uh, sitting back home, and, and then in November, um, the, the national teams in, in, in Europe always have a, a one-week break, and <clears throat> so uh, some, uh, some opportunities came up and ended up joining a team uh, in, uh, in Augsburg uh, back in the DEL and was there temporarily uh, for the rest of the year. And then the guy I was coaching with in Cologne, became the GM in Frankfurt and he signed me uh, before the end of the year to go to Frankfurt the following year. That was in 2004. And that next year we won another championship. Um, and then I was in Frankfurt for the next seven years after that. And then uh, from there, uh, another two years in a place called Ingolstadt, which is just outside of Munich. And then, uh, and then I went back to Frankfurt uh, for five years after that. How'd you end up with, didn't you coach Hungary a lot, like their international team? Yeah, so what happened was when I was, the two years I was in Ingolstadt, uh, the year that I left Frankfurt, the owner died. And we had a, um, a an owner, he was only 56 years old, and uh, he had a massive stroke, uh, brain hemorrhage, and he didn't make it through the, the summer, um, and he willed the team to his number one girlfriend, 
and uh, just consequently willed her a uh, $6 million euro in debt. <laughs> that, oh, wow. That's how deep the team was in. And so she ended up selling it to a businessman in Frankfurt uh, a year later. And then, you know, we had a good year that year. Uh, I think we ended up in second place and lost out. And we lost out in the quarterfinals that year, but we had a, a good year. And and he was very positive, um, you know, with the fans and, you know, saying that all the debt had been paid off, you know. And then he closed the doors one year later. And as it came out that, you know, any time a DL team or a team in the top division goes bankrupt, they have to start over again and go back down to the lowest league, which is the fourth league, and then kind of promote themselves back up each each year from there. So so when I went back to Frankfurt, and in between that time, I was um, I just started, uh, uh, I got the opportunity to coach a national team in Hungary, the U-20s and the men's, and that was actually a great experience because you're going into, you know, a, totally different um way of life and way of thinking um and going into a country where half the country had you know basically been stolen like i'm talking about uh the country of transylvania that romania took back from hungary uh back in the in the second world war days right um so you you know you were dealing you know, with a lot of people, and in particular, you saw it a lot in the players, where there was no belief, there was no trust, because, you know, way of survival in that country has always been, you know, everybody just looking out for themselves. Um, and then when there was any sort of turmoil or decisions people had to make in their life, you know, that were critical decisions, everybody just seems to bunker down and, you know, does don't want to put themselves or put their neck on the line to say the right thing or do the right thing. And um, well, that's got to so make, that it, make quite, it hard to coach. That's got a totally yeah, different mindset. So, but it was it was very challenging. Um, so during that five year tenure, you know, working with the national team, I was also the the GM in Frankfurt, trying to get the team back up to the first league. Um, and so we, you know, when I went. To back to Frankfurt to do that as a GM, um, we moved the team from the third league to second uh, to the second league. Uh, uh, the first year I was back there, and the team has been in the second league ever since because there is no relegation and promotion between the first league and the second league of Germany, which is really unusual. But they're actually bringing it back next year, okay. and. Uh, so anyway, my contract ran out, and the ownership decided that they wanted to go in a different direction uh, because they felt staying in the second league there wasn't really a necessity to, you know, overpay their coaches or their GMs, and so they went in a different regard in that route. And um, so I ended up actually in England last year and um, worked in a city uh, called Nottingham. Right. And England actually, their their hockey has really improved a lot. Um, they have. Were you coaching Daryl? Uh, were you coaching Daryl Olson's kid there? Yes, I was. I was coaching Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. And, and and so it, that was kind of a new experience. And and uh, 
and so in they have a little bit different modus there. So their modus is is that it's kind of like based on how it is in soccer, where or football as they call it, um, where your uh, playoff champion is not the champion for the year; it's the league champion, like they do in 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 football, is the overall champion. So. Um, oh, okay. When, I, when, we, when we started the season, uh, after I think it was 24 games, we were we had been in first or second place um, to that point, and then uh, we lost four games in a row in the month of December and dropped from second to third place. And the coach fired me, <laughs> or the owner the owner fired me uh, because he didn't think we had. We were only like six. We were six points out of second place and eight points out of first place. But he didn't think we had a chance because he felt those teams were too strong that we wouldn't beat them again. So he fired me and then uh, made the assistant coach the coach for the rest of the year. And they ended up you know, staying in third place the rest of the year. And uh, I ended up going a week later after I got fired. I went back to Germany and ended up coaching a team in Ravensburg, which is in the southwest of Germany in the second league, and won the championship. Oh, wow. and, but during, during that time, um, that you know, I lost my job in Germany, or I lost my job in England, and and I was waiting to see what was going to happen in Germany. The, the team in, that I was coaching in Ravensburg hired a new coach for the following year, and so I just went into that situation knowing that I was done at the end of the year, regardless if we wanted to lost or anyway. And so now I'm just kind of relaxing up here in Canada and deciding in what direction I, you know, we want to go on, you know, in, in my career and with my family and, uh, whether or not we go back to Europe or not. Um, I don't know yet. Just wait, so, just waiting for the phone to ring. Well, yeah. it, it doesn't surprise so, me. It doesn't surprise me that you went in there and won the championship and, the, and you're, you've just always been a winner. And, uh, uh, we're running out of time, so I've got to wrap things up. But I just can't thank you enough for for taking the time and talking to us. I, you're somebody that I definitely want to have on again. And what I think would be fun, is, and I know you pulled, I, I know you recently hired Patat. Wasn't it Pataffi that you hired at some point and you brought him back in? I did. Okay, I so did, yes. what I'd like to do is I'd like to get you guys both on the show at the same time, and I'd love to just hear more stories about the Salt Lake Golden Eagles and and the crazy stuff you guys did. And uh, Cherno, again, you're just such such an amazing leader, and you you the impact. I don't know if you even know the impact you had on this market, but it's been amazing. That, like I said, you're just a legend in this area, and I I would not be surprised that at some point you get the phone call from the Utah Grizzlies or somebody around here with ties from here is going to want Rich Chernomaz running their team and and being that guy that teaches their kids hockey again. So uh, well, Jace. Thank you so much for the kind words. And uh, like I said, I met a lot of tremendous and really nice people in Salt Lake over the years. And um, it would be nice to get back and rekindle some of those relationships uh, again. But, you know, I mean, uh, when, you know, as you get older and you start having your families and stuff, it just takes you away from things that you'd like to do personally because you prioritize your, you know, your commitments, especially with your kids and with your family and stuff that way. And, being overseas for as long as I have, which has been 29 years, um, you know, it's 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 tough sometimes to rekindle those relationships because 
you know, um, you, you, you lose, you know, you lose the contact sometimes, right? Right, right. Uh, okay, Rich, well, thanks so much for being on the show. That's going to that's gonna be it for us today. If you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you text the word PUCK to 57500. Or, of course, you can go to kslsports.com, look up podcasts, make sure you subscribe to the Utah Puck Report. Cherno, once again, thanks so, so much for being on the show. Okay, Jay. And that's Thanks it. Thanks for having me. That's it for the Utah Puck okay. Report.